Hey there, podcast listeners. You may know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. CBD does not get you high. It gets you healthy. It is legal to order CBD made from industrial hemp plants online for use in any state without a prescription. My good friends Caleb and John and Patrick and all the fine folks at FYI CBD are here for you. Use Boardroom 20 at checkout. 20% off safe, healthy CBD from FYICBD.com. The Boardroom Surfboard Show, it is happening September 26th and 27th in Del Mar as we honor icon of foam Pat Rawson. Presented by U.S. Blanks, the Boardroom Surfboard Show, September 26th and 27th in Del Mar. And let me tell you about the California Gold Surf Auction. It, too, is taking place. The new date, Saturday, July 11th. The 60-plus historic and culturally significant auction lots begin closing on Saturday, July 11th at noon Pacific Standard Time. The lots close every two minutes. High action on Saturday, July 11th at noon Pacific Standard Time. Lots closing every two minutes. Got to be quick to get in on the action. Previews of all 60-plus lots available soon. And during this freaky time that we live, I'd like to ask all of you to visit your local surf shop online. Spend some money if you can, specifically here in San Diego. Bird Surf Shed, Hanson Surfboard, Surf Ride in Solana Beach or Oceanside, Mitch's Surf Shop in La Jolla or Solana Beach, Encinitas Surfboards, Bing Surf Shop, Seaweed and Gravel, the PB Surf Shop, San Diego, Rusty Del Mar, Patagonia. The list is long. I know I've missed many fine other retail establishments around here, but please visit the one that's near you. Uh, spend a little money if you can, maybe buy a leash or some fins or a new board. Speaking of online, Need Essentials wetsuits and gear. Do a Google search for Need Essentials. I use Need Essentials gear. Full suits, spring suits, board shorts, puffy jacket, wet and dry bag. We've got it all here at this household, needessentials.com. Our guest today is a big wave surfing champion securing the 2011 Double XL Ride of the Year. He has been nominated multiple times in multiple categories in both the toe-in and paddle-in formats. This man has ridden some massive surf, and he's been doing it a long time. He's been through all of the almost yearly changes that take place within the big wave competitive marketplace contemplative, cerebral, and passionate. On the next Boardroom Podcast, big wave surfer Danilo Cuoto. Danilo, big wave charger from Brazil and the 2011 XXL Ride of the Year champion. Danilo, thanks for being on the Boardroom Podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott, to be here with you. Now, sadly, you don't know this, but everybody that comes to my house to do the podcast gets to drink some of this oolong milk reserve oolong tea. Some great surfers have sat across from me, big wave guys, Jojo Roper, um, some other guys, and they've all got to experience the tea. So hopefully one day I'll get you here and, and you can sample the tea. Um, is the oolong tea the one that is very popular in Chile? It might be. I don't know. Um, I'm not positive about Chile, but I know here my wife and I are kind of tea snobs. I think you'll really like it. It's real buttery. It's real smooth. It's a green tea. 
Uh, my wife is really into teas too, and I had a feeling that she shared that one with me. And when I try, it um, tastes just like the same as some tea that I had in Pichilemo uh, in Chile to stay, um, you know, stay warm in the cold weather. But I'm looking forward to come back and having the tea from you, brother. Well, th- yeah, I am too. And I guess uh, most listeners are going to realize that we're doing this podcast via Skype because of the ongoing health situation slash crisis that's occurring around the world, a pandemic. What are your thoughts on this, Danilo? Yeah, it's so many thoughts and um, trying to keep my uh, positive attitude towards, you know, this morning I woke up with the news of a um, 5.7 earthquake in Utah on top of all of that. My kids live there. So it was another test of of, uh, patience and calmness through such a hard moment. And I think it was just a a matter of responsibility between the both of us to do this by Skype. So I stoked that we're being able to make this happen this way. Yeah. And um, I I don't, we shouldn't pry too deeply, but I hope everything's okay in Utah. Yeah. Everything is okay. Um, Certain areas got a little damage, structural, but thank God my kids are fine. It was just another fear for them. But yeah, thank you. I know you and probably some of the listeners know you as this guy that crazy big wave goofy foots charger, but I'd like to get a look to know you a little bit deeper if I could. So let me ask you some sort of basic background questions. Where did you grow up in Brazil? Um, I am from Salvador, Bahia, on the northeast region of Brazil. I, I start surfing at 10 years old, 45 right now, and I surf at a competitive level and amateur, you know, as a 14 up to 16 years old. Um, um, eventually, I, I kind of stopped competing, you know, and just kind of free surf and, and engage and got into college. And when I turned 21 years old, and I, that's when I made my move to Hawaii. Tell me about this this location, this northeastern province or community that you lived in. It is it a tropical area? Yeah. Yeah, uh, the whole northeast Brazil is very warm and tropical. Bahia is a very big state. Uh, we we have the longest um, stretch of coast in the whole Brazil. Very similar weather than Hawaii. Uh, we do have a lot of um, good quality reef breaks. We don't have the size, but we do have um, um, good quality barrels and reapable reef reef breaks. What about your parents? What did your parents do, you know, to keep the family going? My, both of my parents came from a uh, cocoa farms family background. Um, my mom is a psychoanalyst. My dad just, on top of becoming a lawyer, he, he just really concentrated most of his work with farming. Those farms are located on South Bahia, um, and they are, happens to be a very rich region not only, you know, agriculturally, but also on quality of waves. So whenever I do go back to Brazil to visit or to work with um, sponsorships and media, I do spend lots of time with them, with farming and and having the pleasure to explore all the South Bahia surf region. Are those waves uncrowded? Is it kind of a, a wave field with no one around? Is it hard to get to? There are a few um, um, usual spots that gets crowded you know as you know brazil has a huge population of surfers uh, we do have most of the capitals of the states on the coast so surfing is a very popular sport and more and more lately with the 
Brazilian storm. But we do have in Bahia some very, very um, protected secret spots. Uh, we have a coast of, you know, of maybe 50 miles of reef breaks that are still unexplored, and lots of um, 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 four by four to get there. And also, you know, we do have uh, quality waves when it's glassy and it's basically really similar to like Indonesia type of waves. But most of the times we have uh, uh, not the right winds. So you, you got to mix it up a lot of local knowledge with forecasting and, and, and luck and tides, in, you know, and then you can catch some good waves. Yeah, there's still some really good quality and crowded waves there. Danilo, you mentioned the Brazilian storm, which I have some questions about that. My feeling is twofold. One, I think North American surfers are kind of soft. And I feel like Brazilians are just, they're just way more motivated to be the best at their sport. And that's why I think, and of course, I don't have all the answers. It's just an opinion that the Brazilian storm is what it is, is that they just want it more. They're hungrier. Can you give me your thoughts on the Brazilian storm? Yeah, I mean, in general, I think that the profile of uh, the Brazilian Storm Surfer, which is this new generation um, that it's been winning a lot of contests and kind of dominating at every level, a lot of them came from a, a humble background and they see poverty all around them. Some of them came from, from uh, literally favelas, you know, the slums, some just a low-income family. Um, and even the ones who came from a better upbringing, I think like in Brazil, we do mix up a lot on the on the ocean, on the beach. That's where everybody meets up. And it's, it's a common place where everybody, you know, there is no walls or, or, or tickets to buy in and separate anyone. So I think you grew up seeing that. Uh, even myself, you know, even though I came from a more stable financially family, I grew up surrounded of, of, of kids from the slums, and that was my surf spot in downtown. Barra Vento is in the center, downtown of Salvador, uh, the third biggest city in Brazil. So I had to, I understand, I understand the difficulties that are, um, you know, on the most, on the biggest part of the population. So I think the number one drive for them is, this is my opportunity. If I don't make it right now, I'm not going to have a house. I have no idea what's going to be my future. Um, and I think another factor is the weather. We are a tropical place. You can surf. I mean, I grew up surfing all day long, long sessions, you know, and you come out of, you eat a little snack, you come back. And I think that also helps um, with, um, you know, bettering yourself as a surfer. Who are the heroes that you looked to? Were there Brazilian surfer heroes? Or was it a combination of maybe guys from Hawaii or maybe Tom Curran? Or tell me about your heroes as a kid, you know, like who did you look up to? Tom Carroll, you know, being a goofy footer growing up on a, on an area that has a lot of reef breaks and, and strong beach breaks, so hollow waves with his barrel approach. Tom Carroll was my hero. Um, and, of course, we had our local heroes. Um, Marcos Boy was a local hero from Salvador. Jojo uh, de Olivença was uh, our state hero, uh, two times a Brazilian champion, coming from a very humble background, working his way to be a... I mean, that's what you call a hero, you know, starting surfing on a piece of wood and then borrow a board. And a couple of years later, he's 
he became the, our national champion. So for us in Bahia, he is a big one. And he made it to the CT for a couple of years, Jojo, jo, the Olivenza. Of course, the, the level of surfing was way more developed on the U.S. and in Australia. So our, our references were the top surfers in the world. So, yeah, Tom Carroll was always my, my inspiration of, with power surfing and, and barrels and bigger wave approach. Earlier, I, I suggested to you that North American surfers are a little bit soft. They've been given too much too soon. Do you think that's an accurate characterization? Well, you know, when you say too soft, I mean, the first thing that I can think about it is, you know, I don't want to agree with that because, um, <laughs> <laughs> first of all, I live here and a lot of great friends from here. Yeah, yeah. Second of all, I, I, I understand what you're coming from. You know, yeah. when you have uh, a much stable um, financially country, you know, first world, and especially with the last, let's say, five years or 10 years where by far the, the brands here are super strong and you have, you know, bigger contract, you will drive the other competitors. As an example, Brazilians or uh, even Australians, I think, even though Australia has such a surf, uh, a big surf culture, but financially, I don't think no other surfers than the surfers from the U.S. traditionally had the better um, sponsorship background. So you create a bigger drive from the other ones that are hungry to achieve those numbers or those contracts. On the other hand, here, yeah, you can create a more maybe less driven generation since. You know, like it might not affect as much their future if they, you know, their contracts are dropped because maybe they're in a better no, no, family situation. But maybe that was one reason, you know, because there's so many amazing surfers here, such a strong surf industry. So that was a lot of, uh, you know, I heard that question a lot. Why there's not more guys from the U.S. on the CT? And the first thing that I can say is I think when, um, hardships and lack of resources can create uh, more driven in the individuals. When you were in Brazil as a young guy, did you devour the North American magazines or was it just Brazilian magazines there? Or were you looking to like like tracks and ASL and maybe Surfer magazine from here in, in California? What, what media did you devour? I've been here for about 20, Four years now, you know, um, almost half of my life, I'm 45 years old. So back then when I was there, you know, it was all about surfer, surfing. Uh, we did not have access to Australian magazines. We did have um, some VHSs of, you know, IPS or, or ASP, you know, the competitions down in Australia and all over the world. So answering your question, we did, we... We had a strong, you know, media there, four or five magazines during the 80s to 90s. And I think surfing was rocking the industry all over the world. No, we never devalued um, none of the, the international media or U.S. Of course, we always, from, a, from coming from that place, saw that it was 10 times harder to be on uh, in any of those magazines and a lot of times you know it will be this unidentified surfer you know in this amazing picture so we always like scratch our head did they actually really don't know who 
that guy was was just a way to always have an identifier surfer that always happened to be, you know, from from another country. I mean, uh, now I'm touching to the subject of, you know, there's always politics with media and, and, and you know, organizations. It's always going to have. Of course, back in the days, um, we saw that at an early stage how things work on the industry. So you have to to be humble, to work, and, and, and basically let your surfing, your attitudes, and your do the do the job, you know, do the talk, because that was the only way you you know to to find your spot and to be recognized at an international level or on a U.S. level of of media, always the number one and the biggest. You had to work three times more, you know, and, and that was a reality that that I saw at an early stage. And was that a reality? It sounds very frustrating. Was that a reality that you and your fellow Brazilian surfers vocalized to each other out loud? Like, hey, man, they're not giving us the recognition that we think we deserve. You've got to go out and do the extra mile here. Was that something that you guys talked about, vocalized out loud to each other? Or was it an understated, just kind of everyone knew? No, no. Fully vocalized, 100% uh, opinion from from a generation. Again, we're talking about more like 10 years ago, 15 yeah. years ago, maybe 20. Yeah. Um, I think things has became different um, right now. I think it's way more blended. You know, this new generation like Medina, Filippi, you know, Adriano and Italo now become, and Italo maybe it's the best example of, example of a international, uh, well-loved um, um, figure. Um, Italo is another perfect example of, you know, he comes from the northeast Brazil, so we do have more pride of him for our region. Um, Brazilian being so vast, the money, the industry is in Sao Paulo and Rio. So on top of being Brazilian, we're Brazilians from the northeast. We're very proud. We're very um, hardworking um, and easygoing individuals that also had to fight internally being outside of the industry. When I say fight, is to work harder, not on the on, on the bad sense of fighting. So yeah, I remember being very close to a, a generation of WCT Brazilian surfers who would come to Hawaii every year. Peterson Rosa, um, Flavio Padarats, Fabio Gouveia, uh, Renan, you know, Guilherme Herdi, all those guys. And it was pretty clear, you know, that that they, they felt the same way, that a lot of times if they had a hard heat, and there was a lot of, um, um, was a close call. We would always go to the sponsor surfing from the big companies, you know, that are not non-Brazilians. I mean, we all, this is, was never something that was one or two opinions. So, yeah, I think that was overall opinion about it. You could see their drive as a small WCT type surfers that they're there as a team, you know, as a group to, to show to the world and to the system that they had their value no matter what. Do you think that guys like Idolo and, and Gabriel Medina and some of the other young Brazilians, well, maybe not so young now, but this new crop of the Brazilian storm surfers, do you think they recognize the hard work that uh, Guillermo Hurdy and the other guys that you mentioned, uh, Renan and you know all those guys you mentioned, the guys that laid the groundwork for this Brazilian storm, are they getting, uh, do they recognize the hard work and the really the sort of the busting down the door type of thing that you guys had your own real 
busting down the door moment, you know? I mean, you guys kind of had to do that. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I was close to them because, uh, you know, I was living in Hawaii for all those years and uh, on my own, on my own um, big wave surfing world, I, I run to the same, you know, situations. Um, I had my ways of, of keeping moving forward, um, looking for feeding myself whenever it was something that happened, you know, some political move and you're excluded of this and nobody saw that, you know, I kept on my motivation. Um, uh, I think this new generation, they do recognize, for example, Felipe's dad, his name is Ricardo Toledo. He was a two-time Brazilian champion. You know, he was one of my idols as I grew up. So Felipe knows very well. Felipe is from a surfing family. Uh, and I believe every one of them, maybe Adriano being maybe this transitional guy yeah. who kind of like lead this new generation, you know, as our first, you know, champion. I think Adriano um, probably relates much more with the, this, this generation that came right behind him. You know, he was able to surf around with Raoni, Leo Nevis. So th there was a transition between it. So it's interesting fact for us to bring this. You know, because when you come from a, a country from Brazil that into a world dominated not only the companies, the media, but the association, it's all was always in between the U.S. and Australia it was always very tricky to navigate. But I think, yeah, I think they do recognize and, and you know, they on the end of the day, the, the, the fact and the truth is that, yeah, you know, there is we have to recognize the elders who paved the way. You know, and, 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 yeah. How do you think they recognize it, Bill? I mean, like, I could see somebody like Idolo even getting on a, a stage, like maybe when he wins an event or something, and, and saying, hey, this one's for those guys that helped us pave the way. I'm not so sure I could see Gabby doing that. Do you think anybody is going to verbally vocalize that, hey, let's pay some homage to these guys that, that paved the way for us? Hey, quick break in the podcast to tell you about FYI CBD. My friends Caleb, John, and Patrick, and all of the fine folks working at FYI CBD are here for you. Use Boardroom 20 at checkout for 20% off safe, healthy CBD from FYICBD.com. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, you know, it's a good question. And you made a good, you brought it up like you see maybe Italo saying that, but maybe not Gabby. I mean, I'm going to bounce some que a question back to you why you believe maybe Italo but not Gabby? Probably just because I'm I'm ignorant. You know, I'm a little bit naive. I sort of see Gabby as the guy with the black hat. And that might be the way that even the media has portrayed him. You're right. I absolutely love Italo. Like, I'm a big fan. I'll just tell you, I enjoy having a guy that wears the black hat. For a long time, it was Andy Irons for me. For me personally, Gabriel's the guy with the black hat, and it's good for the sport to have that. That's why I bring up just suggesting that maybe Gabby wouldn't say it. It's just my own ignorance. No, I, um, <clears throat> when you say the black hat means, you know, it's the new guy who is coming, busting down the doors and might be kind of like poking the, the darlings of the system, right? Yes. yes. In case uh, when Andy came and I was lucky um, enough to see all of that in, in person, close by, you know, the talent that the Iron Brothers showed was like ballistic. And when he came and he was like, oh, okay, well, he's making things hard for, for Kelly. 
which is the gold. And I'm sure some of the, you know, the media's companies and, 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 and the associations feel, you know, like uh, bother about it, you know, but, but they cannot say that. It's just like, no, not really. So it's like politics. Um, Gabi, I think Gabi was the first Brazilian that showed up to be the best ones, to be the best one in the world when John John became the, the next biggest representative of Hawaiian or, you know, U.S. of the big companies. So there's a lot of heat on him. And Gabi is different than Italo on personality. And, you know, I think people sometimes love to judge and, and go all over Gabi saying this and that. But his, imagine be on Gabriel Medina's uh, um, body and, and life, what he had to go through on the first years to be recognized. I mean, I still remember when he got completely uh, robbed in a final and he was bawling, crying. How old was him? I don't remember. He was very young. He was just, yeah. he probably couldn't understand, like, what is this? Is this, is this a professional sport or is yeah. this, just a, a, you know, like a boys club? So, uh, you know, it's easy sometimes to make a, a, a broad perspective or, 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 or you know. Um, Ignorance. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't like to say that because we all have our own perspectives of life, our own realities, our own truths. Right. I, somebody's going to might not agree with me and say, no way. He didn't really win that heat. And that is it's always up for discussion. You know, the beauty of surfing. But I think on the other hand, I'm going to end this this long answer again. Gabriel grew up on the beach in Marizias, which is a wealthy beach location in Sao Paulo, not too far from the industry. So as soon as you start doing well as a young surfer, you got a sponsor like that. That's not Italo's case. Italo got his sponsor when he was young just by his pure, raw talent. And he's a very personable, very likable Northeast representative. So, um, I mean, I hope I was able to express of my opinion between the differences of them, but also how the whole system sometimes um, has an advantage to portray someone this way or the other way. So it's very interesting to, <laughs> and I would, wouldn't change a bit to be a, a Brazilian on the whole surf industry. And I think the beauty of it is as time passes and some have to be the, the leaders of the representatives of a movement of to be recognized, uh, things are in a much different place right now where I see the way the surfers blend in, you know, like Brazilians, Hawaiians, Californians. I think surfing also at this point, we're in a place that people are blending in way better, I believe. When you moved to Hawaii, I guess you were in your 20s. You'd finished university in Brazil. Did you? Are you a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> you sound like your dad. You're pretty smooth. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds funny. Um, no, I'm far away from a lawyer. My dad is a lawyer. I actually didn't really finish college. I I did economics for two years, and my drive to go to to the to come here actually, my goal was to come to California so I could better my English. In the moment that economically the whole world was all about globalization and you know open of markets, so my goal was to come here to learn English so I could pursue a you know a career on uh, international business. But my one of my best friends, Yuri, was just moved to Maui, and I said, "Hey, mom, dad, I I I'm gonna spend the 
the December, which was the first month of um, college break in Hawaii, in Maui. And then I'll go, go to California to do the English course or whatever in, in January. So, But I never did. I stayed in Hawaii because I realized that people speak English in Hawaii and, and you know, it wasn't too hard to get a job. Either, what did you do? Uh, I did um, I dishwashing. I did landscaping. I did construction. I, I did roofing with Jock Sutherland when I moved to the North Shore. I did all kinds. And were your eyes, were you sort of fixated on on growing your your big wave abilities at this time? I mean, how did you move into the big wave arena as not just um, you know I'm going to go catch some waves, but a mental change and, and a focus on riding big waves? When did that occur in relation to your first years in Hawaii? I like it bigger waves back home in Bahia, Brazil, but now we're talking about six to eight feet maxing out, you know, strong reef breaks and and dangerous surf spots in front of rocks. I always liked that, but never had any idea that I was going to have a big wave career outside of that at all. My drive to my my travel was really to better my English and then get some surfing while I was here. That was my go-to be in Maui and then in California. But as I moved and I decided to stay to better my English while working, I really found pleasure and and satisfaction when the waves are getting bigger and bigger and the crowds will drop uh and that was in late 96 you know i I arrived in hawaii december 96 i spent my whole 97 working and surfing in maui um that was kind of like my transition to bigger waves i went i made a three-month trip to indonesia after saving some money in the summer and after that i made my move to the north shore but I also I also register myself on on uh, Hawaii Pacific University to to pursue my my studies there. Came to a point after two years that I could not have my mind on those homeworks and those papers as I was coming close to a, uh, the end of college, and I start getting my first barrels at Pipeline and my first big waves at Waimea, and my mind wasn't there anymore. And I had to have a talk to my parents and and I say, hey, surfing is calling me. I need to. I, I've been inside a classroom for way too long. And and I made it happen that in 99 and a month later, I got my first little sponsorship and, and went from there. What did your parents say? My parents yell out on the phone saying no um, at first. But and then came one of those kind of like what we're going through right now, economic uh, recession, um, jumping the dollar to, to a much high price on the exchange with our money. And all of a sudden, my schools, my uh, college became too expensive. I mean, became expensive for them. And I used that momentum in a way to say, hey, can I stop college right now? They're like, sure. Yeah, take a little breaks. So that was it. That's all I needed to to switch my life and my priorities. And at that point, it was like, I love this. I want more. I want bigger. I, I'm, and then every time I got a bigger, I was like, whoa, you know. And some of my surfing idols are meeting them and surfing around them in Hawaii. And then at times I'm surfing bigger waves than them. I was like, wow, wow, is that even a possibility that I could get a sponsor to surf big waves? And sure enough, it, it happened, you know. So. It, 
dedication, love, you know, really, really listening to my gut feelings and my inner voice at that point were very crucial to change the path of my life at that point around 1998, 99. I imagine that as a big wave surfer, to get an invitation to surf in the eddy, the first one, what was that like for you? Was that like a, was that like a pinnacle for you? Was that like, oh my God, I've made it type of moment? Tell me about what you were feeling when you got an invitation to the eddy. To be invited on the main list for the eddy at Cal, when the eddy at Cal event is now on the hands of the Hawaiians, it means the world to me. That's when I got invited on the main list, not on the previous organization. I was not invited. I was a alternate. And that's how I surfed at Ekao, being a, the last alternate to get in. Um, I only got into the main list in the last two years. And for me, who, who lived half of my life in Hawaii, who really, really like adore and appreciate the Hawaiian life culture, really feeling connected with the place and the people and with a lot of my personal values of family of you know straight up type of attitude you know no bullshit no like talking shit around i really connected with that type of with that hawaiian style um, life and uh, yeah this is my biggest um, for sure uh, accomplishment and to be invited when the family's running, that they're deciding the list with right. very, you know, with all the family and the people who are in the water with you, they're seeing everything. Yeah. So for sure, was the pinnacle. Um, um, of course, winning the XXL awards with the Paddle Wave of Jaws. Yeah, it was the biggest prize and, and, and a huge honor also. So, yeah, you won the, I believe it was the 2011 XXL Ride of the Year at Jaws, a massive right-hander. What did your parents think about this? They must have been excited, right? Was this a moment where you're like, see, Dad, I told you so? <laughs> yeah, well, the XXL Awards, you know, during my whole big wave career was always the pinnacle, you know, where there was the Eddie Cal, which is the biggest honor, but we only happen a few times. There was the Mavericks contest that, you know, always was happening, you know, super consistent surf spot. But the awards were the one that happened every year. And there was a strong, you know, drive. The, the prizes were, you know, good. And that was a beautiful event, you know, where we all celebrated. They have this huge amount of videos to show how the whole year was. I mean, I, I'll never forget those good years of the XXL award. I, my first final was in 2004 during the Toad Days at Peahi, and that's when Pete Cabrera won with a big left, and I came very close to winning. You know, I got second place, and somehow the, the organization said that I lost for, uh, for one foot on, 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 on that year. Did that feel like more politics to you? Uh, I heard a lot of that, you know, from both sides, of course, a lot of, of the Brazilian media kind of hyping up. But I, again, I really like it was in the beginning of my, of my big wave surfing career. And I really took that only as a, how can I say, it's hard to say because I saw Pete Cabrinha's wave, you know. So there, it was a long years until I, I got my, my winning, you know, I got several times as a finalist on every division you know overall performance barrel you know i got a 
very um, special uh, backside barrel at Peahi. So I, I made a finals as a, a, a the barrel division. So I, I build, I work hard for that. After spending all those years towing in a Jaws, my drive to paddle has always been bigger than tow. And I was always saying, we can paddle this way. No, you cannot. It's too big. It's too hollow. You got to have a big board to paddle, but and then you have to have a short board to, to seek the drop. And, you know, my big wave partner, Rodrigo Hazendi, and my mentor, we always talk about it. You know, we start planning that in 2001, 2002. But it was only in 2004 and five that we went for our first paddle sessions. And then we start building that. And it was only a few of us. You know, and then came the 2011. That was the year that it was a lot of um, the paddle revolution was going on. There was a lot of big swells on the, the year before. And yeah, it was, was a long, long road to that special moment. Hey, early on, were you focused on the left? The early years, 2004, 2005 at PIE, were you more focused on the left-hander? So we're go- I'm a goofy footer. Marcio is a goofy footer. So is Yuri. Um, we kind of like consistently together, best friends from back home in Bahia, uh, kept on exploring a few years uh, for a while. They left. Hey, a quick break in the podcast to remind everybody about the California Gold Surf Auction. 60 plus historic and culturally significant auction lots begin closing on Saturday, July 11th at noon Pacific Standard Time. Previews of all 60 plus lots will be available soon. Now back to the podcast. It's way more manageable for um, for paddle at first. So yeah, on the first sessions that we had, we did concentrate more on the left. Keep in mind that some of those sessions we did uh, with the jet skis and was more of a survival strategy uh, that we could kind of like stay away from the wake of the jet ski too. It was almost impossible to to risk yourself. It was it was only a matter of time of, of direction, too. Many of those swells, they came out of the West. Uh, especially, I remember one in January, there was a huge West swell. And when it's super West, it does block a little bit of Peahi. So it makes it more approachable for paddle. But at the same time, it's much more lineup on the left. Not, it was only on, on, on February 2011 when I actually got the wave that I won the award that the swell came way much more north with a shorter period, more peaky, and, but with a you know, big size that, that we're able to focus more on the right. So it was just a matter really like um, listening to the nature, to the location, and of course, approaching the wave from a front side. And it was only a time of a matter of time to to push more into the right, and I'm glad that I was blessed with that right and the right time on the right moment. What about now? Do you would you rather go right or left? And what is the ideal conditions like regarding the swell direction and wind and tides? I would definitely prefer to go right. It's way more of a challenging, and the barrel is there, even though I got a pocket right barrel at the left once what happened is we started surfing for a while it was just five six of us you know we're consistently going and it was only a few of us all of a sudden it's 60 people you know 70 people where the vast majority are um are hustling 
and hassling from the right. So I, I kind of go with the flow. Uh, you know, at this point, I'm not going to be... The left is dangerous, right? It's You're right into the rock. A lot of people don't go left because it's if you're not rescued, you could be in deep trouble. Hey, a quick break in the podcast to let listeners know if you've got a brand or company and you're interested in being involved in the podcast, get a hold of us. We'd love to talk to you. Now back to the podcast. Um, yeah. And if it's really big and windy, yeah, you might be able to to sneak a gigantic wave on the left. So that's that's how amazing Jaws is, you know, either going right or left. That that wave is just a, the best big wave in the whole world, in my opinion. And yeah, answering your question, I don't mind go right or left. You know, I know that to sneak into a big barrel of the right is definitely not an easy thing to do. So, you know, Albie Lair recently was injured and he basically said, look, I'm not competing anymore. Shane Dorian, not competing anymore. What's your status? Are you, are you retired from big wave competition? I know you're still riding big waves, but where are you at with that? Well, I'm very glad that they can make that choice and still pursue a big wave career. Can you imagine if I had the opportunity to be invited for one of those contests this year? I was going to say no. Oh, I'm not. I don't want to compete, you know. So I'm glad that they're <laughs> able to make their choices, you know, as a recognized surfers um, and, and make, you know, the decision based on what they want or not. I, I'm living in California now. I moved here just to be a little more better located. My wife is from here. I'm um, having another, my kid number three. You know, I have a boy coming up very soon. Congratulations. Um, yeah, thank you. I, I love Are you in good with. shape, Danilo? Are you in good shape? Yes, yes, I <laughs> am in good I don't travel as much. I don't have the same backing of sponsorship as I had on previous years. I've been really involved with the Bragg organization, the Big Wave Risk Assessment Group. Um, we're growing our um, services and our trainings all over the world. So being here, I am a more strategic place. I'm also closer to my family back home in Brazil and my sponsorships and my, and my projects over there so I can bounce around and, and between here and then Hawaii. You know, I'm very happy with everything that I accomplished so far. I still will keep surfing bigger waves, but I'm balancing out all those projects in life. And I, you know, the Eddie Aikau is where my, my heart is right now as far as um, putting my energy. So every big swell on the last couple of years, I just stayed right there on the North Shore of Oahu um, where I was living all this time in Hawaii, you know, and yeah, I think that is a new generation coming. That is a lot of hungry kids, a lot of crowds in Peahi. I love the place, but I don't go as often, you know, and a lot had to do with, with um, um, the ability to dedicate all your life just to surf. So I, right now I balance that out with other projects, but I keep myself motivated. I'm in the water all the time. Be sure that if they call the, the, the bay calls today, I'll be there. Right on. What kind of training are you doing? I do much surfing. I do biking. I do swimming. I do breathing and yoga. That's pretty much it. You know, I did much uh, breath hold and apnea training. So, I, I you know, I, I learned some very interesting breathing stuff with a trainer that I had in Hawaii, RK training, which is really based on, on pranayama yoga and ways to train your breath hold on breathing exercises, but not necessarily uh, the apnea deep training. I, and I like to keep the, 
the cardio with biking and swimming. So I've been swimming here in San Diego much. The waves has been kind of slow and it's been some raining lately. So I'm just staying active more on the pool lately. This yoga, is it a, is it a hot yoga situation or just? Well, no, the pranayama yoga part, it's more on ways to to breathe properly, to breathe consciously, more to your nose. Um, that brings into a better uh, alert and calm state of mind where you actually in tune with your heart and you can control your thoughts and your emotions. Um, so it has a lot to do with, you know, um, be connected in a deep way with yourself. It's no, it's not Brikam yoga. It's no hot room yoga at all. Um, you know, it's... Uh, it's a mix of, you know, keep stretching yourself so you can stay young, you know, you keep your limbs loose, but also have the awareness to do breath holds. And, and so whenever you back up the heavy deep, so you know how to equalize yourself, which you learn a lot of this into apnea, and you're able to relax and, and, and keep your heart calm under the heavy situations. Do you get butterflies and anxiety when you know there's a big swell event on the horizon? Uh, the butterflies, always, you know, if you don't have the butterflies or uh, something is wrong with you. I mean, when we're talking about the super heavy days, yeah. but anxiety is something that I was able to, to work, you know, like I feel way more calmer the day before, you know, I, I think that's what time brings, you know, you've seen every swell. I mean, you see many swells, many directions. So you kind of understand a little more what you're going to encounter the next day. And I think when you're younger and big wave only happens so often. And I think the unknown, how really is it going to be? Where really I'm going to go surfing? That can bring anxiety to anyone, you know? Yeah, doesn't matter. I'm going to surf tomorrow, but I don't know where or which board I'm going to use if I'm going to go right, left, but I will. I, I think when... After surfing big waves for many years, you're able to really like remain calm and, and, and enjoy what is about to come. But of course, when you're like looking at the waves and if it's a heavy closing out Waimea, Mackin Jaws, Gnarly Chopo uh, or Fiji, for sure, you're going to have those butterflies. And then you've got to create your system. How are you going to deal with it? What's your mindset? What type of, of habits, protocols that you can use to calm yourself so you can actually perform? Only time can give you that. I've been to many situations where back in the days that I did really horrible just by being, you know, like caught up on 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 your mind and or anxiety or fear. And I remember actually the opposite when I, I knew exactly what I got to do. I had that plan in mind. I'm, you know, I'm in top shape and I'm just ready, you know, like so you can that is a ways to control your fear. How yeah. many times have you almost drowned? Probably three or four times. Twice was in Mavericks. I remember hitting the bottom. I remember like hearing the second wave breaking on top. Um, I remember the, my board hitting my my temp my temper here in my head and chopo that I could not see anything and I and I got another wave in my face because I couldn't see anything and it was was a close call it was back in the day it was only six feet six feet plus and i had a, a another heavy one at, at peahi where i had to climb my leash back on the big early days with no vest with no safety just me and my body surfing at solid 20 foot plus and when i came up the next wave was already exploding in my head so that was another close call but um thank god i'm still here to share the stories with you 
Amen. Do you, when you encounter some situation like that, do you call it quits for the day or do you try to get your act together and potentially paddle out for another wave? I I used to, I didn't know what concussion was. I didn't know what um, recovery was all about, which are things that we really try to, to bring into our brag program. It's all these experiences that we've been through, you know, and we try to to um, pass on this knowledge so people can learn from our mistakes or, or situations that we've been through. I, I just, by training, by understanding the physics, it's like I'm not even having contractions. I still can be here for much longer. So that understanding with training, and it's very uh, something that it's been helping me is to keep engaged with instructoring with brag is you keep it fresh you keep that so on in our mind so i did back in the days committed the mistake to come back to prove myself that i didn't have fear and it was so wrong and i know how close i came to death by doing that so for whoever is listening us you know you don't need to prove anything to anybody main thing is to go back home so if you got into a heavy situation that you're kind of dizzy, you don't see well, your head is hurting, you're done. You're done and recognize it and go rest, accept it, analyze it, and then go back another day to, to enjoy it. So this big wave risk assessment, um, tell me a little bit about this. So is this like a class that I could sign up for or the big wave risk assessment program? What is it? Um, yes. Yes, you do can sign up, and it's for every level of surfers. Um, but it was born within the big wave surfers. This program was a started as a reactive, a reactive gathering to honor our friend Sion Milowski, who passed away in Mavericks. We, when I say we, Brian Kalana, Cole Christensen, uh, we were the founders on the beginning process, and we we decided to do something. We started with a CPR training at Coles Barn on the North Shore, probably 15, 20 of us, all some of the elite of big wave surfing, right during those paddle year revolution. And that was the first step. We, over the years, and that was in December of 2011, for me, it was a very intense year because we lost Sion. The very next month was the XXL Awards. That's when I won my big award. And Sion also won on the same night, the performance of the year. Um, him not being there was a very, it was very disturbing for me, you know. And yeah. I felt like I had to do something. I had I had a momentum, you know. When you win an award like that, so you, you have a voice no matter where you're from. And I was able to share my feelings and my ideas with Cole Christensen. And, and then we did a first step. And then we brought in Brian to lead us. You know, Brian Kalona being... You know, the, the hard to even describe and like, because I look up to Brian as. In many you know, ways, he's kind of like Eddie. Yeah. And he carries the spirit of Eddie for sure, right? Yeah. Brian is a role model as, uh, he, you know, as a man, as someone with values, someone with much respect to anyone. And Brian also, you know, as a big wave surfer, as a waterman, a rescue man. I mean, you can go on and on. Um he, he hit it really hard when we approached him, you know. He had lost uh, um, both Mark Fu and, and Todd Chasser, you know, very close, um, being close to them. 
And when we approach him, he was all about it. He's like, yes, let's do this. So he really guided us. And we built this, this, this program together. Basically, the four pillars of this program is the risk assessment, the risk management. It is the preparation that goes behind, you know, learning how to breathe and, and hold your breath and stay calm. And then if, if things go wrong, we train people how to do proper rescues, either with surfboard or jet ski, depending on your level. And ultimately, if things go really bad, you know what to do uh, in, a, in case of a, a medical emergency from CPR to bleeding to, um, you know, any type of head trauma, spine, neck. So we try to, to bring the most comprehensive, compact um, training that, uh, that goes through all these areas. And we do discuss a lot of best case scenarios that we, we you know, we bring very practical tips to handle uh, a series of waves or a heavy wipeout. I mean, we go on and on. We're very open to discuss whatever uh, the, the surfers have to ask. So yeah, we're, we've been on this program, on this, on this journey together. Our group right now is myself, Cole Christensen, Brian Kalana, and Pat Chong Tim. Pat is a, you know, is a agency, DLMR, someone that works with the, that. So we have like a good mix, you know, from a, a legendary um, waterman to two surfers who dedicated their life into charging this biggest wave. And then we have someone with this a little more of an organizational side and, and training because we also interact with agencies around the world. You know, whenever we do a summit, we usually arrive days later. Many times we, we train and we coexist with, with fire department, with lifeguards or, or har harbor um, um, officials. And, and yeah, that's we've we really been navigating and, and, and making a bridge between surfers and the agencies and then what to do. You know, it's all about to create protocols so everyone is on the same page. When things go wrong, you know who to call, where emergency is going to come from, where you should do less lives are. And this is all in honor. Loving memory of Simon Milosky. Cool. And so that's sort of, is that one of your main sort of focuses right now is the big wave risk assessment program? Is this something that takes a lot of your energy and your time? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a growing organization and, you know, it's a great avenue for myself as a, a dedicated big wave surfer for 20 years. And that keeps me very close to what I love, what I do. You know, and I, I like it. You know, I don't want to just be a professional surfer and go surf. That's not enough for me. I like I like challenges. I like new projects. This is kind of like who I am. And that's been a pleasure to leave this legacy. So I'm really putting a lot of energy on that to make sure um, this legacy stays in, in track and, and, and can keep saving lives. Because I yeah. think when you are a big wave surfer, you inspire people to charge hard, period. Right? Yeah. You, yeah. So I think you do have a responsibility with it, and that's what the way I see it. So yes, we do our, you know, we do charge big waves, and we inspire a whole new generation, as you can see right now. And and it's many beautiful stories. You know, we just have, you know, most recently we had our, you know, global summit that we call them the North Shore every year. We've been really pushing for the new generation, and we're having every year more and more grounds. So sure enough, 
one of those groms um, right on the last day of the pipe masters when the waves are like grom size, right? It's like four or five feet back door, shallow and, and, and inviting. Boom, one of the kids hit their head, the knock unconscious, and everyone on the water like was on the same page. Everyone knew the hand si- signal to use. You know, Brian was happened to be in the water and everything happening so fast. And we know when things go wrong and you get knocked unconscious in the water and the water is getting into your lungs or to your body, every second counts big time. So um, we just had two very, um, very intense situations, one with um, with the Groms and the other one with our own co-Christians in the last day of the year where uh, he, he came really close to, to, to be gone. But by the angel hands of um, the lifeguards of the North Shore, uh, Kai Garcia and everyone who was there, same thing. He was brought to to the shore on a split second, and even with the, such a heavy head injury, for the fact that he was brought to shore so fast, with all these protocols and techniques that we keep trying to put it out to the surfers, he's right here. He's doing better than ever. You know, he's sharper than ever. I can guarantee to you. It was a perfect day. You know, it's one of those classic situations where it doesn't seem like something bad would happen. You know, picture perfect. And um, But mean, I mean, it was mean. Obviously, it was a mean day. But, yeah, it's cool that, thank God, that Cole's doing better. That's good news. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's doing great. We've been communicating a lot with the group in the last couple of days. <clears throat> We're having to cancel a lot of our, our, our international summits, you know, following the guidelines and the safety, you know, we, we work with safety and risk mitigation. So it was the right decision, but we are working hard internally to provide more training through our, you know, online and social media um, um, outlets. And this is where we are right now. So make sure we don't stop providing this training, this knowledge that saves so many lives, um, even with the, the adversities right now with traveling and organizing events. As you know, Danilo, back in the 80s and 90s, surfers on the ASP, if the waves were big, you had to paddle out and surf in your heat. For instance, there was the Billabong at Waimea, and there's been some other situations where maybe at Sunset Beach, it was you know 12 to 15 feet west swell, just mean. And it seems like we've kind of gone away from that on the WCT I personally am of a fan of having our world champions surf one event in a big wave venue. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think, first of all, we got to understand, you know, there's two different beasts, you know, like, you know, a surfer who wakes up every morning thinking of performance and and a surfer who wakes up every day to surf the biggest wave and do the gnarliest job. Back in the days, yes, you know, I definitely see your, what your point, and I really value back in the days when the, the event were in Sunset Beach, and it got too big, and they put it to Waimea. Yeah, and they don't have that anymore. I think we should have that mix. I think this new generation is more gnarly and prepared than ever. There is way more of a quantity of young big wave surfers you know we have a whole crop the whole maui crew billy kemper albie layer kai lanny um you have right here in california luke uh, jojo um and a whole new crop of mavs mavs chargers so i believe that the new generation are coming with that game so maybe right now is a good timing mix that up on the tour and when you asked me that question you got me back into gary linden 
uh, had a plan to put the Todos Los Santos contest into the to ASD. The surfers yeah. vote, voted no. Gary had the whole event planning on hands, and that's when uh, the ISA uh, with uh, Cadu Vilela and Fernando Aguirre decided to bring Gary in, and they did it at the Todos Los Santos uh, unforgettable big wave event. And it was a very interesting format where it was by the countries, two surfers per country, and it was held during the El Nino, 98-99. It happens that my fellow uh, surfers from Brazil, Carlos and, and, and Rodrigo, my, my big wave partner and mentor, they won that contest. You know, On the same day, Taylor Knox got the huge wave, won the, the, uh, the XXL award back then, and kind of like it was the fire for this new movement of, of competitions on big waves. So... You know, I had to bring that up because I remember I was talking to Gary the other day and, you know, and Kadu is here in, in San Diego and they're bringing back how that all started. It was almost like a, a rejected plan from to the ASP. He said, no, we don't want that. And that turned into one of the most unforgettable, huge events and iconic that's going to stay here forever in our minds. Definitely was a turning point on big wave surfing. From there, the XXL Awards came together and not much longer came the Big Wave World Tour. I'm a big fan of the Big Wave World Tour. I just, as you do, you remember, I remember, you know, Gary Kong Elkerton, you know, windmilling down 15-foot West Peak Sunset. And, and guys had to surf Sunset Beach at the very least. I know it's difficult to time swells for Jaws or for Mavericks. But it seems to me at the very least, I want my world champion. I want to know that my world champion can surf 15-foot Sunset. And I believe that probably 90% of the guys on the CT can do it. I know Gabriel Medina can charge big waves. And I would like to see that. I think it would be fun. I just would, at the very least, would like to see Sunset Beach on the CT. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to be a, a, a world champion should be rounded, right? It should be able to surf every type of wave. And that's the true champ. So it, it's on the hands of uh, WSL. Create that type of champion that is well-rounded. Um, those are my idols, you know. Those are the guys that I look up to when I was surfing. It was was Gary Alkerton, uh, was Ronnie Burns, you know, um, was Tom Carroll, Tom Curry, Marvin Foster's. These are the guys that I was able to look up to from far away on little videos or, you know, like I actually got into big ways when I moved to Hawaii in 97 and I'm like seeing a lot of my idols not really going out at big sunset outside and dropping outside. And I, I saw all of that happen, you know. I was like, you know, I love Sunset Beach. I paddle Sunset Beach with my, my gun. And that's where I do most of my training, you know, when you're asking before. The biking, the swimming, you know, the breathing, it's kind of like a natural whenever the waves are not good. But I'm a, a, I'm a sunset, lo- sunset Beach addict, and it is the best training in my life. For me, who loves to surf big sunset on a big board outside, yeah, I don't, I don't get it why they're leaving that away. I understand performance, I, but I think that should be a more blend of, of big waves on the regular tour to make more you know, well-rounded surfers. Yeah, just one. All I'm asking for is one. All Danilo and Scott want is one event where we get the well-rounded surfer. And oh, by the way, you mentioned something that's important. Just because we have an event at sunset doesn't mean you get to sit on the inside bowl. You have to surf the outside peak and ride the wave all the way through. Anyway, I'm getting a little opinionated, but I, I've, uh, <laughs> I'm, a fan of, I'm a fan of what you mentioned, you know, like real legitimate sunset. 
and blending in into that, even not so long ago, maybe they changed that right now, but not so long ago, they stopped pipeline on a second reef day. And, and uh, I mean, we're at the beach and literally they're same thing, you know, they, where's the 8.6 to go to third reef? Where is the 8.0? Oh, no, everyone was just like, you know, waiting for the first reef and, and it's a long period swell. And that's not so long ago. If I'm not wrong, it's like four or five years ago. They had to stop the pipe masters and was, a you know, for us who love big pipeline, it was one of the best days of the of the season. So, um, yeah, I, it's funny. I, I recall I was there for one of the rip curl events, probably like, I don't know, oh, five or oh, four or something. And, and it was macking. It had a little bit of morning sickness, but it was cleaning up quick. And everyone was on the beach kind of hemming and hawing. And, and Tom Curran paddled out. You may recall this caught a mean one rolling in from second reef, rode it all the way through. And I remember I, Claw was at Jamie O'Brien's house and Claw was just like, okay, that's it. It's on. And I, I, they ran the event an hour later and it was all time. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope that they can blend in a little more. Yeah. Even Italo. Italo went to Nazareth right after he won the, the <laughs> right on, he won the title. And he had an opportunity to be in Portugal and Nazareth was going. So some of the fellow Brazilians who, who put their time there, Alemão, tow him in some some waves so yeah you know it's i think the drive is there i think big wave is way more uh, of a bigger sport even with the newer generation so maybe this is the time right now so to add a little more excitement but i think we're gonna have to wait for that now and be patient you know it seems like we've been talking here for so long and we're like going back in time but we're just about to go back to reality we're where we gotta to be more indoors and planning our next move. So maybe maybe we should shoot an email to the WSL and say, can you guys add a more big waves when you guys are back in action? Uh, they've heard me. Believe me, they know all about my opinions. Hey, one last question. Who's the best big wave surfer to have ever lived? Ross Clark Jones or Shane Gorey? Oh, okay, both? Which one? Hard to say, man. It's, it's you know, two different generations. But when you're doing consistently for as long as Ross Clark is doing, it's, yeah. it's pretty amazing, in my opinion. You know, it's like just pure talent, drive, you know. He's, and Shane, how, what can I say about Shane, you know, pure technique? Maybe Shane is the, is, is Shane the best surfer ever? you know all rounded have you thought about bringing him into the big wave risk assessment shane seems like a guy that's real real thoughtful we're open to everybody we collaborated with everyone shane uh, came yeah. to our first seminars you know the first ones were really concentrated on on the on the elite of big wave surfers and, and it was only natural that we kind of start opening up and merging to everyone so shane yeah, was very supportive and very um, part, um participated very on the beginning so we're we collaborate with everyone, you know, Greg Long is one of our top instructors right now. Um, I'm dedicating a lot of his experience and his past, um, you know, situations that he's been through. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's such a pleasure to, to work with all this crew and, and keep passing on, you know, passing on the knowledge, you know, hiding, not keeping. And I just want to send all my love to all my American friend surfers. Uh, because we brought it up on the beginning here and my background is big waves and I never felt much of that, you know, when you that weakness that you brought on the beginning, you know, like big wave surfers have a drive no matter where you're from and, and such a brotherhood that, you know, I'll 
it's just been a pleasure to to share all this this heavy and intense moments all around the world with such a, a mix-up crew good stuff danilo how does somebody get more information on the big wave risk assessment group um yeah you, anything is uh, info at bwrag.com or our um, instagram uh, brag and uh, yeah we'll be shooting some news very time soon here um, but we're going to go on hold for, for a while now until until things get better for traveling and to organize gatherings. So we're looking forward to some, some news soon here on our website. Danilo, thank you so much for your time on Skype uh, today. I really, really appreciate it. It was great getting to know you. Uh, yeah, Scott, for sure, man. I, I Congratulations on your work, on keeping the fire of surfing alive, you know, with your, with your boardroom, your podcast, and all your legacy that you left on, you know, on magazines and photos. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for, for inviting me and looking forward to some more big waves on the, on the tour and, and all the action coming ahead. Okay, buddy. Thank you so much. All right. Stay safe, everyone. You know, patience and calm breathing. We're going to make through this. Thank you, Scott.
Oh, my dizzy fell like rain. 